It was hard, but I'm pretty happy with who I am. I'm a lot more self-aware and even the things that have, you know, were published that weren't always true that I shouldn't have read. There's just always something to learn, even from misinformation about yourself or feedback. Mm. That's like someone else's damage, someone else's problem. It's hard not to take things personally, but when you are always open to self-examination, you have an opportunity to then kind of pick through the things that are true and aren't true. And you have, you're actually listening to feedback and doing something with it rather than living in your own weird silo. And there was a time where my feet didn't touch the ground. Like if I had pulled it off, I wonder who I'd be. Mm. And I wonder if I'd like that person. And maybe that's some rationalization for not making for not making $280 million selling the company or something. But I really do. Some, I just want, I wonder. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Sophia Amoruso is the founder of Nasty Gal, a women's fashion company. Her New York Times best-selling autobiography, Girl Boss, was adapted into a television series on Netflix in 2017. Today, Sophia is also the founder and CEO of Business Class, a digital course for entrepreneurs looking to build successful businesses. And she's also a founder and general partner of Trust Fund, a venture capital firm investing in early stage consumer businesses. I love the name because Sophia definitely came from humble beginnings. I loved her honesty about her mistakes along the way, her early successes and failures, and how she learned and became the entrepreneur she is today. My first question for Sophia was, Where did you grow up and did you have any influences or were there signs that you would become a successful entrepreneur? So I grew up mostly in Sacramento. I was born in San Diego and I wish I could say that I grew up in San Diego because it feels a little bit more glamorous, but California through and through. Moved to Sacramento when I was seven. My dad did home loans and my mom sold houses. And this is in the suburbs. So these were tract homes and she worked in the model home on weekends and I was with him on weekends and he did homes for the the developer. So it was just kind of a... Yeah, they were entrepreneurs in their own right. They worked pretty much entirely on commission and I watched that happen. And my dad grew up on a motel in West Sacramento with seven, you know, seven kids and it was a pretty intense, not super happy place to grow up, pretty hard. And so I guess that was entrepreneurial, just in the kind of Italian Portuguese family run business, but no one would have called themselves an entrepreneur as a motel owner in 1957 or whatever. And then my mother's dad owned a piano store at one point he, I think he was in the army. Anyway, it runs in the family, but I don't think anyone necessarily called them Phillips entrepreneurs or business people. They had businesses. And I was, you know, very angsty kid. I didn't like rules. I'm bad at being told what to do. 
I learn experientially. I, I'm a very kind of tactile learner, okay listener. But if I immerse myself in something and I'm curious, I can learn anything. And then I'm like an A++ student. So I didn't always apply myself. I actually homeschooled for the second half of high school. I was like, there's a bell that rings and I get up from a desk every hour and sit down at another desk in a room down the hall five days a week. What, what am I being trained for? Like what mediocrity am I being trained for? And that was like also just very angsty, but I wasn't wrong. And I wasn't also wasn't ambitious. I was just like, not this, get me out of here. So I moved out when I was 17 and I was, I was actually very like anti-capitalist in high school. I was going to anarchist book fairs in in San Francisco and like reading Emma Goldman and yeah, et cetera. Dumpster diving, trying to live outside of the confines of capitalism. And ultimately I was like, wait, my life isn't under my control. This isn't working. I can't subsist on the scraps of capitalism. And I didn't go start an eBay store at 22 because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like every other or most eBay sellers, I was someone who was like, let me see if I can sell some stuff on eBay. I was a power seller, but I still didn't consider myself a CEO or an entrepreneur. And I started selling vintage clothing when I was 22 after a litany of crappy jobs and record stores and shoe stores. And you know, I didn't end up going to community college or any college. Uh, and my last job was working in the lobby of an art school in Sacramento or in San Francisco, checking student IDs, just being like, hey, you need to sign in. Hey, okay, admissions is on the second floor. I never really had a job that I used my brain for. And I never had a job that I was incentivized to do a better job. I just thought the delta, the margin between effort and pay seemed like the best deal. So I got jobs that were the lit, like smallest effort for the most pay and most pay being at most $13 an hour, which seemed like a lot when I was 21 years old. So I started selling stuff on eBay, vintage clothing. I wore pretty much exclusively vintage clothing. I loved it. I knew where to find it for cheap. I thought Hate Street was expensive, but I discovered these eBay sellers were selling at auction, $10.99, $9.99 starting price, stuff that ended at like $250. And there's nothing to teach you perceived value, like taking something out of a thrift store that nobody cares about for $8 and making it look cool and selling it for $250. And the customer determining that price, I didn't tell anybody it was worth $250 and the customer being stoked to have it at $250. That was a beautiful business as a solopreneur. It's a lot of work to sell vintage. I was shooting everything and shipping everything and writing all the descriptions and styling the models and Sourcing everything, which is what you do when you run an eBay store. And I think people are like, wow, you did everything. It's like, yeah, that's what you do in the beginning. And it also allowed me that, you know, when I hired my first employees, I was able to train them on those things. When I hired my hundredth employee, I definitely didn't know how to train them on anything, but I guess I'll get there. So year one on eBay, did $75,000 in revenue. I drove an 87 Volvo. I didn't... 87 Volvo, did you say? I had like never eaten an oyster. I was drinking like beer and dive bars. I didn't even know what I would spend money on if I had it. But I was like, wow, I'm onto something. And I still wasn't like, wow, I'm an entrepreneur. I was like, oh, cool. I don't have to go back to a crappy job. So then year two, I did 250K. And at that point, I left eBay and launched my own website and started curating from 
trade shows and had complemented the vintage that I was selling and what I knew my customers liked with new stuff where I could buy depth. I could buy six units and take one photo. So with vintage, you take a photo, you sell that thing, you write a description and you never get to use that work ever again. I was like, wow, I didn't... That's so cool. And that stuff started selling. And that allowed me to scale the business from... 250k that second year to 1.1 to six and a half to 12 profitably with no investors and no debt. I have a screenshot of my Wells Fargo bank account where I have my business account and my personal account on the same view where I saved $995 in cash in the business account. I have $8,500 in cash in my personal account and a $2,500 credit limit. So I was heads down and I thought selling. I thought business was buying things and selling them for more than you paid for them. I I didn't know businesses could lose money. I didn't know people really invested in businesses. I lived in the Bay Area and I didn't know what venture capital was. And it wasn't until 2012 when I'd actually moved my small team to Los Angeles. We were doing 12 million in revenue, planning for 28 that year, still own the company 100%. Investors started crawling out of the woodwork, venture capitalists. I was getting inbound emails from their associates who were just kind of like scouting companies and somehow heard through people. No idea. I hadn't even had press at that point. I heard about Nasty Gal and they were like, hey, we'd love to talk. And I did have one person, an early advisor named Dana Freed. And he was like, the longer you can hold off on getting investors, the better it'll be, the more you'll own. And I was like, cool. But at that point... I had conversations with these guys and Jeff Jordan from Andreessen flew down. Jeremy Liu from Lightspeed flew down and Danny from Index came down. And it's funny, we'll talk about it, but I have a venture fund now and Jeremy Liu and Jeff Jordan are both investors in my fund. And I ended up going with Index and they invested $60 million, valued the company at 350 million posts. And we hired 100 people in a year. So let me ask you, at that time, you're doing $12 million, you have this business, all of a sudden, these VCs are coming out of the woodwork. What was it that they saw and the opportunity to scale with the business at that time? Because was it still just a business where you were selling strictly off of eBay? Or had it grown to that point where you had your own site, you were selling? Where was where was their interest, obviously? And we know VCs, right? So what was the interest at that point that they came out of the yeah. world? So that second year was when I had left eBay and launched my own website, nastygalvintage.com. I eventually bought nastygal.com from someone squatting on sorted URLs uh, for $8,000. It's not but bad. It was a direct-to-consumer business. And this was early e-com. Not the earliest, but this is twenty. 12, fab.com is at its height. Beachmint is hot. Chew Dazzle is hot. One King's Lane is hot. And ASOS in the UK was coming up. And that was a fashion startup that Index had invested in. So it was a really pretty early... There was no playbook. It was called e-commerce. It wasn't called direct-to-consumer. There was no Shopify. We had to skin a a PSD in Photoshop and hire engineers to <laughs> like code it and slice up each of the buttons. 
it was a lot harder than there was no executives to hire who had e-commerce experience or direct to consumer. Eventually that became the word. And I'm just now having, I'm so envious of watching all these companies that get to start with executives who have, who've like had careers in direct to consumer who have playbooks for go to market. That wasn't a word either. So they invested, they saw the opportunity. I mean, it went from six and a half to 12. We were on our way to 28 profitably. People were obsessed. Nasty Gal was of a feeling. Nasty Gal was a brand. Nasty Gal was so much more than selling clothes on the internet. Nasty Gal made women feel confident just by buying a leather jacket. The spirit of it was really new. It was edgy. It was fun. It was conversational. It was the first time people had seen e-commerce models really styled with a handbag and sunglasses. And they were going somewhere and they looked like they could be your friend. And you could see this kind of cool culture of maybe the lifestyle that you wanted to have or the person, the girl you wanted to be who was pretty, but not an alien and aspirational, but just one step ahead and still achievable. And so for the girl who was shopping on Nasty Gal, it was like, oh, cool. Like I could try that thing. That could be me. Let me get that jacket or try a red lip. And wearing a red lip for that girl was like, game-changing. It was like a vote of confidence for her future self that was very new at the time. So Nasty Gal kind of provided that mirror. And so Danny ultimately said, this is the community. And I was like, yeah, it is. And this is in 2012. And like Venture does, they valued the company at, I don't know what, 11 times revenue. I owned 80% of it when it was worth $350 million, the first money in was out of a growth fund. It was just this anomaly. It was very serendipitous and, oh, this community college dropout and unlikely. And eventually I told that story in my book, Girl Boss in 2014. But from there, we you know hired 100 people in a year. It was kind of like the Tower of Babel. It was like fiefdoms and silos and cattiness and pissing contests with executives. I never, I didn't understand politics. I never worked in an office before. I didn't know what people, what leadership meant. I had never experienced it. Was that a difficult time for you? Obviously you've just come off this incredible, all these VCs coming after you, you decide on one, you're valued at this enormous amount. You probably never could have imagined like you said, as, as a child. And then all of a sudden you're in this world and it, it doesn't sound too happy. It was the best. It was so fun. I was like playing poker with Dick Costello and, you know, Jeff Weiner and Drew Houston at Index's summit and like winning in Calistoga ranch. I was like, it was like champagne clink after champagne clink. When people congratulated me, I didn't, I'd ask what for, because there was so much happening. It was just milestone after milestone for a little while. But we don't see what's happening under the hood uh, when the tide is high. So when a company's you know, winning and revenue is growing, there are still dynamics and things that haven't been built, foundations that haven't been built, processes. Like Everybody's like, yay. 
And it's really only when that tide recedes that you see all the weird like crab shells and soda cans and weird milk jugs and tires or whatever people throw in a, As in Warren, a sad river. Warren Buffett says, you see who's swimming naked. Yeah. And so it was a blast, but it's when everything's up and to the right, you don't see that stuff. And eventually the tide did recede. So we hit a hundred million in revenue. It took us a few years longer than we had anticipated. I had hired 300 people. We had signed a huge lease for a warehouse in Kentucky. I had hired an executive from Zappos. We Hmm. were doing everything in house. We had an engineering team and a product team and we had designers and we had a print designer and pattern cutters and buyers and we're spending you know of course then acquisition gets expensive it wasn't all 60 percent of our traffic was direct when index invested and so the company got kind of bloated because we hired and invested into a business that took longer to get to 100 than we anticipated and it cost more money so when index invested in 2012 we were on our way to 28. So we were planning. I never really planned for growth. I just left like a litany of leases in my wake, bootstrapping this thing. And now I had a COO and I have these smart investors. And we all sat at a table to plan the next year's revenue. And we put our fingers in the air and we said, well, let's round up by 100 million. So the expectation when we were coming off of a $28 million year was to do 128 million. That was the number in the budget. It was what that was based on. I don't know. I was in my mid twenties. I was like, there's grownups in the room. They've had careers for longer than I've been alive. Great. You're supposed to hire experts and trust them. But I also didn't know how to hold people accountable. And I also didn't understand finance because my math was buy it, sell it for more, don't spend the money. Which is. Funny enough, actually, when you think back and what real businesses do, that's really what the truth of the matter is. But you're in your 20s and you're sitting around this table, right? And you have these VCs and, like you said, the grownups. And they're saying you're going from 28 million to 128 million. Personally, what's going on like in your mind? I was used to that growth. I expected these executives at that point I had like a team of C-level executives and directors under them and bench and I expected these people to come in and diagnose the business based on their experience and say here's the plan of action and to work together like grown-ups and get along and go do the thing that would operationalize the business in a way that took it from a the something with that a bunch of kids built into something with great processes and culture and you know well-oiled machine but i had never held anybody accountable i didn't know what that meant because i mean yeah it's like hey show up on time to ship the stuff oh you process you ship someone the wrong thing but that's not the same as planning a full huge projects and executing on a financial plan that we set out for a year prior so I didn't know what I didn't know, like all entrepreneurs. And I didn't, I couldn't intuit or empathize with what people needed to be successful because when I said I was going to do something, I just did it. But what I needed as a solopreneur, entrepreneur to be successful 
I didn't quite realize other people needed this thing called leadership and management and accountability and inspiration. I was just like, let's go. I was kind of, yeah, I was just like, let's go. So the whole story that everyone's become so enamored with of this girl who didn't go to school, who eBay store, you know, for the cover of Forbes in 2012, all very cute, but I was at a disadvantage. And while that is, it's an outlier for a reason, because I wasn't really set up to succeed and anybody can start a business, but I actually recommend failing a little bit earlier or experiencing hardship a little bit earlier or figuring out how to manage your revenue plateauing in year two or three instead of year like 10. So I wasn't really equipped for what was happening. But again, I didn't know that until revenue did plateau and really until we did our first round of layoffs. I feel like when you do layoffs, that's when people are like, toxic workplace. Like everybody was having a blast when we had $1 business cards and we're like drinking champagne every like clinking and going out to drinks and celebrating and traveling. And how hard was that for you when that time came, when you did have to make layoffs? It was really hard. It was really, really hard. And I know you've been trying to get at hardship because there is a lot of it, so much of it. And it was Months after I wrote Girl, after I published Girl Boss, I wrote Girl Boss in 2013, so 10 years ago. And it was the story of this whole thing winning, sold half a million copies and spent 18 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And I'm a hero, right? I was 40 under 40, 30 under 30, Inc. 500, and all this stuff. And then had to make some tough decisions later that year. And it was then when I realized that make, making hard decisions is a very delicate thing. It was something that you know I got advice on how to do. I could have done it more gracefully. I think I had never laid anybody off before. It was you know when you lay off the PR team, they it's they know who to talk to and say like I didn't like working there. Like literally, like so. Then now there's headlines of like oh it's a it's a bad place to work. Because especially people, what the company was that it was it grown so fast, and people there were redundancies and people bumping into each other, and there were definitely leaders on the team who were maybe better than others, and a culture on one team was different from another team. You know, I think where there's smoke, there's fire, and almost anything. And I would never deny completely like any that's an echo of what's been said or written about is true. But the, they went like straight to Jezebel.com and they were like, she's not the girl boss. She laid people off. She, it's not the best. And it was, that was really, really hard because now who I was as a leader was conflated with who I was as a personality. And there were so many more eyeballs on me because I had put myself on the map through the fundraise and then eventually through the book that was in every bookstore and airport in the country easy to hold a kind of mirror up or use someone's success or inspiration or leadership as a counterpoint to the mistakes that they're making. And that is something we've seen with so many, especially female founders over the course of the last few years. That's not uncommon, but I like to think I paved the way for it in a really sad way. Got a lot of phone calls from them when that started happening. You talk about that in being a female founder, especially 
when you started your business, which today, thank, thankfully, there's, there's a lot more. You know, in fact, I, the first, I'm on probably episode 200. The first interview I ever did was with Jenny Fleiss from Rent the Runway. And I still remember that she had said, she tried to go into these VCs and explain to them what it meant, the experience. And you talked about this earlier on the show, the experience of wearing that jacket or the experience mm-hmm. of opening up that box and thinking, you know, you're Cinderella, you're going to the ball mm-hmm. and like looking around the room and it's all these 50 year old, 60 year old white dudes who, you know, have no idea what that feeling is like. So they can't envision that. And it's very hard to raise money at that point. You go back and and really when you started this business, being one of those first kind of new wave female founders, when you think back, do you wish maybe you weren't one of the first and that maybe it was 10 years later that you started your business? Would things yeah. have been different? Yeah, there's definitely a huge advantage especially just in hiring talent and having watched other people make mistakes can learn a lot from other people's mistakes. It's what I, why I teach entrepreneurs in business class. And it's why I like investing and taking companies from zero to one and working with founders, because I want to shine the light around the corner for them in ways that nobody did for me. So yeah, as after nasty gal went through so much, tumult, tumult, so much challenge. I watched these new entrepreneurs emerge. And quite honestly, I was envious. I was like, why is... Am I just flawed? They... Wait, I'm sorry. They're in their 20s. Somehow their company's happy. They're raising money. It's not falling apart. They're not doing layoffs. They're going on the victory lap. I went on. Wah, I'm old news. And was a little bit resentful. And then I realized that Building a business is really hard for everybody. And especially, I mean, for first-time founders, it's tough. And for people who raise a lot of money, it's extra tough. And for inspirational founders with cultish brands, disappointing their employees, that's like personal. That's another level of responsibility. So yes, I've had those women reach out to me and be like, I have to do this thing because I saw you do this differently. And now I kind of have to it around this tough decision because I don't want to get the flack that you got. And I have to retain this employee for a year. So it doesn't look like this one thing that's happening in their personal life. And the fact that they're a low performer are correlated. And now this person's just got to stay in my organization because I don't want to get, I don't want to get sued. It's like, whoa, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) What ends up happening with the business? Yeah. So 2014 did our first, it was a small round of layoffs. 2015, we opened a couple stores. We had spent more money than we anticipated because it took us longer to get to 100 million than, than we thought. We had you know hired a lot of people. And I was trying to raise money. And we were valued at 350 million. But at that point, venture dollars weren't really going into fashion businesses in the same way. Fab.com had completely imploded. None of those guys really pulled it off. Netta Porter pulled it off and Zappos pulled it off, but nobody else pulled it off at that time. And our investors were like, we own 20%. We don't want to invest anymore. And we were 
overvalued. I think an early nail in the coffin was being valued at 11x when we were an apparel business. So then private equity guys were like, oh, cool. We and there were strategic private equity guys or potential strategic acquirers who were like, oh, maybe this is worth 200 to 250. A well known urban retailer of millennial whatever clothing offered over $411 million on a piece of paper to buy the company. And I was advised to ask for more and it went away. Every deal goes away anyway. Nothing ever Hold on, happens. hold on. You were offered that and told them to go away at that point because you were advised by... My investors. I owned 80% of a business that could have sold for over $400 million. I controlled the board. I never built a board. I had two seats and my investor had one because I heard boards sucked. I didn't have like voices around me giving me advice. I paid an attorney who was probably introduced to me by my investor. And I took advice from people who were smarter than me. I, I can't blame anybody, but that fell through. It wasn't a multiple on the $350 million valuation they had invested at. So it wouldn't have looked good on paper to their investors. So they'd you know, rather just hold out and see if we can eventually get marked up to a billion dollars so they can go raise their next fund. I mean, it's a racket. I understand how it works. I'm not doing that. It's a great time to start investing because we're not going to be valuing early stage apparel businesses at 11X. And this was not even like a hot time. This isn't 2021. So there became this silent investor on board. And maybe they would have paid $200 million to invest in the business. And they were excited and I was excited and I'd spent time with these people. And then there were a few times where it just kind of disappeared. And I was like, what's going on here? This is weird. Because like they were pretty bought in. And then I reached out eventually to a couple of them and I was like, what happened? And they said, your investors told us offline without me in the room, if you can't pay $350 million, don't worth, don't bother showing up. I controlled the business, but like there were like back conversations happening behind my sure. back by people who actually didn't even control the business influencing its outcome. And basically cock-blocked my ability to raise. And eventually we got to a point where it was like, okay, well, you won't reinvest in us because you already own 20%. If you go try to raise money and your existing investor won't put more money in to support you, even a dollar. And if someone says, is index gonna is are they investing as well? And I say no, they're like, hmm, damaged goods. I don't want to invest in your company. So, and I've never really talked about this. What my investor did, so I'd taken some money off the table when that first money went in. That was the only money that went in was that $60 million. He said, I can convince my partnership to invest twice whatever of your money you put back into the company. And that's the only way I'm going to put money in. And that really... I did it. I lost it. I didn't know what to do to turn it around. The idea was to incentivize me to turn that into more. But I was just, I had hired a CEO two years before it all fell apart. And, and it really kind of drove a stake between me and my business. And I resented it. And eventually the outcome was the same. If I had not done that at all, it was like pretty, pretty awful, right? I've never heard of that happening. So 
Hail Mary after Hail Mary, after cock block, after Hail Mary, we were starved out of the opportunity to fundraise. You know, business had plateaued. We were still a huge business. On any level, it was successful. And we had to make the unfortunate decision to send Nasty Gal into chapter 11. And I didn't want to reorganize it. We sold it in chapter 11. I was like, I'm just out of my league here. I'm not going to start my business over again. I just spent 10 years building it. I'm sorry. This has been hell the last few years. Like I'm 32 years old. My entire youth has been poured into this business. Let me move on. So I did. And I started a company called Girlboss. And Late Speed invested, initialized, you know, Alexis Ohanian invested. And I did that for about three years. And that was more of a media company. Yeah, ultimately that was that was the ride. And I guess what I'm leaving out is that a few months after Nancy Gell fell apart, Netflix premiered a series called Girl Boss, produced by Charlize Theron, with a girl named Sophia starting a company in San Francisco called Nasty Gal, streaming into 130 million homes in 195 countries in, in almost every language in April of 2017, four months after Nasty Gal, after I'd left Nasty Gal. So here I am in my early 30s, 10 years, my entire identity has been hinged on this business. I were already like a public face plant. The show is being shot while things were still going well. Comes out and now it's like, Ooh, what's the real girl boss like? And is she this character? It's a scripted comedy, but it was, there's people whose jobs are literally to criticize TV shows. They're called critics. And I've been put through the ringer before based on who, like I actually might've been. And now it was, what is she the, is, is the real girl boss like this? And there was a headline. The worst thing about Netflix's girl boss is its source material. Like try that. After all of that, then then the whole world is is looking at this fictional character conflated with this real person who's just come off of like the hardest year, divorced that same year. I mean, like it's we're not here to talk about relationships, but that was kind of the the crescendo was the Netflix series hitting and being like, oh my gosh, this new wave of awareness of who I used to be happening to me as I'm for the first time in my adult life trying to do something new. How hard is it for you? I mean, for anyone, and and I'll be the first to admit my self-esteem isn't, I'm an entrepreneur. It's one day, you know, you're on top of the world, the next day you're at the bottom. And But how hard was it for you at that stage, all of this public attention, everything that happened, all the initial success, as you just said, which we do talk about because it's part of life and part of you and you being an entrepreneur coming off a divorce. How hard was it for you at this time? And then starting another business. I'm like Beetlejuice. You can say my name three times and I'll eventually pop back up. (laughs) Like I took money off the table, but I also need to work. And I like building businesses. I like starting them. I've realized I'm not great at building them now, which is why I'm an investor. But I don't know. My second business was Girlboss. And I was like, this Netflix series is coming. This is a marketing coup, right? 
it would have especially been for Nasty Gal. I don't know if they sold more clothes because of a Netflix series. The book didn't sell more clothes. Unfortunately, it was supposed to be content marketing and it just sold books and distracted me. But getting like that was a marketing, getting other people to pay to oh, so fun. And so I was like, there's this huge amount of awareness coming. You know, I didn't know that that would be as hard as, as when the Netflix series hit. So I just got up and I was like, I'm going to do a conference. I'm going to call it Girl Boss. I had no idea what I was doing. I got some sponsors. Just launched some like event right page, sold 500 tickets in a week and had to figure out how to put on a conference and invited all these awesome women who had been on my podcast that I started in 2015. All these awesome people that I had met along the way. Kevin Systrom flew down to speak at the first Girl Boss rally. Like, so cool. And... And was just like, you know what? Like, let's go. Let's let's pick this up. I'm gonna start something new. This I've been sitting on this girl boss thing that now has gotten even louder than the nasty gal brand. It just became this phenomenon. And while the public, not even the public, the media, like the public, whatever, the people who read Girl Boss and the girls who shopped at Nasty Gal, they all showed up. They they weren't like, oh, you're a pariah or you did this or we're disappointed in you. They were like, oh my gosh, I'm failing too. Whoa, mm. you did it in public. Now I have permission to do that too. There was just, it's humanizing if you fail in public and if you're honest about it. And honestly, it's much easier to just have this conversation in some like BS media trained thing that I don't know what, I don't know how people do that. But it's a gift to, I guess, show people that it doesn't matter how far you get, that we're all failing different ways all the time. And just failing on a public stage is louder, but it's not necessarily any harder than anybody else's hardship. And I, I think people don't give themselves enough credit for, for that. Have you found it to be therapeutic? I hate to say, like, in a way, have you found, though, this to be therapeutic from a human personal standpoint in life? Business, entrepreneurship, it's one part. Obviously, this show is all about entrepreneurship. But really, business and what you do, sure, it could define you, but it's only one part of your life, right? Do you feel that Having gone through all of this in the highs, the lows in public, and just it seems to me like I didn't know you back then. And honestly, I didn't know you until we started chatting. I've read about you. But it seems to me like from where you were to where you are now, there seems to be a calmness. Uh, like you've gone through something that you've learned, you've grown. Is that? True. Oh yeah. It's like a huge asset. I'm sitting on an arsenal of experience that I can exploit for other entrepreneurs now. And when I invest in their businesses, when I teach them in my online course called business class, you know, I feel it was hard, but I'm pretty happy with who I am. I'm a lot more self-aware. And even the things that have, you know, were published that weren't always true that I shouldn't have read. There's just always something to learn, even from misinformation about yourself or feedback. Mm. That's like, you know, someone else's damage, someone else's problem. It's hard not to take things personally, but when you are always open to self-examination, you have an opportunity to then 
kind of pick through the things that are true and aren't true. And you have, you're actually listening to feedback and doing something with it rather than living in your own weird silo. And there was a time where my feet didn't touch the ground. If I had pulled it off, I wonder who I'd be. Hmm. And I wonder if I'd like that person. And maybe that's some rationalization for not making 200, for not making $280 million selling the company or something. But I really do. Some, I just want, I wonder. And I like my house and stuff. Like my life is good. I'm just not, I don't own like a boat and I don't, I don't really like need a boat. And... You know, <laughs> I'm not a boater either. I live in New York City. Although there are some boats <laughs> in the Hudson. But in any case, it's really amazing to think about that and to say, would I have been different? Would I have been happier? And we've had, at least I've had the opportunity to have many billionaires on this show, many people who have gone through so much. I mean, and no one understands even to have success. Uh, the founder of Lululemon, they were going to go bankrupt five times, right? What's the difference? I always wanted to start a show that was about the person that quit right before the success happened. But the problem is you you don't know who those people are, right? Because you can't, you just don't know, right? Because you can't. So it's very interesting to me though, with you, because the one thing I've noticed, which maybe it goes back to seeing your mom, seeing your dad, seeing your grandparents as entrepreneurs, but you've been able to pick yourself off the mat, even with all this public, the talk, the issues, and you have been successful. And now it sounds like you're in a great place. And I want you to tell me in a little bit of the time we have left about business class and also about just investing. And I, I love the name because mm -hmm. it's so Thank ironic. You. It's so ironic. I yeah. love it. Especially being here in New York and seeing so many trust fund kids and babies and born on third and a half base, right? And thinking with your story coming from really, like you said, nothing. I love those stories the most and you learn. But tell me about business class and, and tell me about trust fund. Yeah. I think, you know, just to your point about getting up again and getting up again and again, all I've ever done is exploit what I have for what I can have or use what I have for as much as I possibly can. And everybody has something they start with. And some people are born on third and a half base. And for some of those people, it's really disadvantaged. And all you can do is as much as you can with what you have. And that's whether that was vintage clothing and eBay or a book that I've turned into a business or my expertise that I've turned into an online course with business class or my access and ability to help entrepreneurs and network to become a venture capitalist. Like that's all we can do is be resourceful in the same way that I was thrifting for clothing and curating what might be best for the customer. I'm just curating what's best for me and my strengths. So business class, I started in late 2020 during the pandemic. We shot it in my house. And so the name sounds really descriptive, right? It's a, a course for entrepreneurs. It's also a community. We have a community called The Lounge. And it's called The Lounge because it's aviation themed. 
So it's called business class, but I'm dressed up like a 1960s Pan Am flight attendant with like flippy hair and it's all these aviation puns. So each of the modules is called a flight. All of the legs are called, all of the lessons are called legs. It's seven flights and it's, we do two cohorts a year. It's self-led, but we drop one flight a week over the course of 10 weeks. But we have a few break weeks, which we call layovers. It's just like endless puns. It's the most... I love it's it. It's so fun. It makes learning about entrepreneurship so fun. So we're launching again in April. And you can get on the wait list at businessclass.co. But all I want to do now is harvest my experience for a new generation of entrepreneurs. I don't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. It feels really good. It's free. You know, I do it for free sometimes, but it's also opportunity to provide a lot of value at scale with business class. And it's a program that goes through everything from stuff as simple as finding your strengths to validating your idea, or if you already have a business, auditing your idea and refining it, mapping the competition, finding your customers, reverse engineering your competitors' customers, looking at the white space, everything from loyalty to earned, owned, paid media leadership, uh, the difference between LLCs and C-Corps and S-Corps and B-Corps and trademarks and patents and building a great brand and naming your business. So it's a really comprehensive program. There's 300 pages of worksheets. I do live calls with guests. So there's over 60 hours of conversations just like this with people like Damon John and Jen Rubio from Away and people I'm sure you've talked to. And just this amazing community inside the lounge of thousands of entrepreneurs who are building their businesses together. I've been angel investing for 10 years now with my first investment in First Dibs in 2013. I've invested over a million of my own dollars in startups like Liquid Death and Eight Sleep and Public.com, uh, Pipe. There's a few unicorns in there, Kind Body, which is a women's fertility startup. But largely across outside of Liquid Death, things that allow people to make money, save money, access money, build their businesses, be more productive, access healthcare cheaper, faster, more beautifully or nimbly or conveniently, measure their health and track their health. That's what I'm attracted to. So products, tech-enabled products that make people's lives better, that have a very clear consumer application, that aren't infrastructure, don't understand that. And especially on the entrepreneurship side, I was the person with eBay and PayPal, nothing else, who stared into the void and have watched all of these amazing tools emerge for solopreneurs, business owners, people building big businesses. And I know every single thing I wish I had and how I would have used it and how it would have integrated into my business. And so I have a big advantage there. I'm writing 150K checks into seed and pre-seed early stage startups, no consumer products, no direct to consumer. It's very hard to build a billion dollar business there. There are other investors to invest in businesses like that. And there's of course the outlier like a liquid death or an away luggage who reach a very high valuation. And then on paper, their investors look great. And maybe some of them sell their shares and they're happy. Um, but it's a very, very hard thing to do and really rare. And I've also put enough stuff in landfills to where I just don't need to... I don't want to play in stuff. I also have the opportunity to learn about software and play across both consumer 
and B2B, but I see B2B as B2C because I was the C when I was on eBay. <laughs> I should be a rapper. <laughs> but I wasn't, I didn't know what SaaS was. People using Shopify have never heard of SaaS. People using Calendly don't know what SaaS is. They're entrepreneurs, they're freelancers. They know what SaaS is. And that's great. It's because these products are are reaching the people like me from Sacramento who didn't know they could be business owners. And that's what's driving their stock up. Like that's what's creating these businesses. It's not the venture-backed founders who are, and yes, organizations using Slack and there's Slack and there's enterprise sales, but there's also sorority hacking Slack for, for things that have nothing to do with business. So all of these tools have multiple uses for so many different end users. And the average person is attracted to them because they're a great brand with a really obvious application for how they can turn themselves or their talent into a business of one or a few people. And, um, that's like that's the critical mass that I understand that I was one of the first of who I've sold a lot of books to and who follow me, who I can also evangelize these products to, who send me deal flow. I could just read you my whole deck, but it's very compelling. And I feel like I have the wind at my back. And so I'm about $7 million into a $10 million fund. I announced something called a community raise, which is a 506C election. Doesn't really matter. Normally, when you raise a fund, you can't talk about it in public. So I'm actively raising. The SEC would like send me to jail had I not elected a 506C thing, which allows me to talk about it while I'm raising and also have 249 investors in trust fund instead of the typical 99. So that means more checks. And that means maybe smaller checks. So I announced in January that I, in TechCrunch, that I was raising a $5 million fund and that I had already had LPs like Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon and Jeff Jordan and Andrew Chen and Ev Williams and Jeremy Liu and Paris Hilton and Anthony Noto on my cap too, on my, as investors last year had called some capital. In January, I said, listen, I'm opening this up for founders, operators, experts, marketers, creatives, creators, influencers, executives to apply to invest in trust fund. We're allocating up to a million dollars for people to write checks between 2 and 20K, which is unheard of and tiny. These people aren't getting invited to invest in the kind of companies I am. They're not getting invited to invest in funds that I will... That trust fund of the echelon of trust fund and they can be wildly helpful. And so allocated up to a million, got over a thousand applications from accredited investors who qualify and over $6 million in applications. So we can't take a thousand of them. We are taking less. It's a lot of LPs, but I've taken the fund now from 5 million to 10 million. So we're technically oversubscribed and we're just like closing up the rest and going to do now what I love most, which is invest in entrepreneurs I believe in and help them you know, have a material impact on their companies at an early stage and stay close as they grow. So if you're listening and you're an entrepreneur and you're not selling stuff and you've got a billion dollar idea and a great deck, you can go to trustfund.bc and send me your pitch. I love I like it. it. Sophia. I want to thank you for coming on and and just your authenticity. And my last question, really curious if for where you are now, if you could go back 
and do it again, right? Not with what you know now, but go back and do it again, but maybe not do the same exact things. Would you do that or are you happy, comfortable with what you went through and where you are now? I'm fine and I'm getting better every day. I've got a lot of damage, but like who doesn't? And I'm super transparent about it. And I have a lot of really great people supporting me. I have a therapist and I have time and I've had time and I keep moving forward and learning. And that's super fun. I have a great life. There's nothing to be like, I, there's nothing to feel sorry for myself about. Like I wake up and I look around and I still can't believe that I live where I do. And I've owned my house for 10 years. So no. And to make those decisions, I would have had to be a different person. So do I wish I'd gone to business school? Yeah, I think that could have been cool. Do I wish I had experienced leadership from someone who I could have modeled that example of when I started my company? Yeah. Was I someone who would have understood how to get that job and keep that job? No. Would I have been someone who wanted to go to business school? No. But do I understand the value of those things now? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Super inspiring. Wishing you the best of luck. It sounds like you guys are doing really well, obviously with Trust Fund. And it sounds like to me, the opportunity for you to be able to mentor, especially with business class and to talk to these people about things you didn't have, but to give them that to me feels like it would be super rewarding. It's awesome. Yeah. So we launched business class again in April and you can join the waitlist at businessclass.co. And if you're a qualified purchaser who wants to write checks over hundred K email info at trustfund.vc because we're looking to wrap this up with some bigger checks. Awesome. And yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Yeah. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Sophia. Okay. All right. Have a good one. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.